Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. We're your hosts. I'm Tyler Stanley. I'm Gerhard Steuben. We're here discussing Pseudo Dionysius's mystic theology. Before we get started, Gerhard, what are we drinking today? Uh, we're drinking Maker's Mark whiskey. Bourbon. Bourbon. It's different. It's totally different. It's totally different. <laughs> because in, according to Pseudo Dionysius, uh, the maker of all creation has left uh, the maker's mark on creation. And you can know the maker through the marks. Um, but you have to have the maker's own guide, which is scripture, which is a lens to read the marks, like handwriting. So you just... The more you partake, the more you experience the divine. Yeah. Mm. So just drink it up. Yeah, just drink until you, like, throw up and pass out, because that is... And throwing up is the negation. Yeah, it's the negation and the lack of knowledge, lack of understanding. That joke will make sense in, like, 10 or 15 minutes when we explain about the negation. So, Tyler, what's the negation? (laughs) What's, what's What's negation theology and what's affirmation theology? Okay. So, uh, we'll put it in fancy schmancy theological terms. Cataphatic and apophatic are different ways of thinking and speaking about God. So, cataphatic is like making an affirmation, making an assertion about God. God is love. God is good. God is light. I'm making affirmations and assertions about God. But then when we get we get to apophatic, which uh, in Greek means like unsaying or negating. Uh, in Latin, this this way of doing theology is called the via negativa, the way the, uh, the negative way. So then we're, we're saying God is not light. Because that doesn't make sense. Light is a, a, a thing that helps us see. It's the absence of darkness. That's not a... God is beyond that. God is beyond uh, goodness. God is beyond, you know, whatever analogies we have for God. So apophatic theology is kind of the, the second step in making our way towards understanding who God is. And we'll get more into that as we, as we get into the work that we're talking about. But let's talk about Dionysius, pseudo Dionysius himself. Gerhard, do you want to tell us a little bit about this dude? Sure. Uh, so, pseudo Dionysius, um, we don't know much about him, um, but we know that he definitely wrote um, within like a 30 year gap at the end of the 5th and the beginning of the 6th centuries. Um, I believe somewhere like 45 to 5. 15 or 20 is about the years that it's estimated. Um, So he wrote somewhere in the eastern uh, half of the, like, Greco-Roman world. Um, He either wrote in Greek or in Syriac. Um, The more, like, fashionable scholarly opinion today is that he wrote in Syriac. The traditional opinion is that he wrote in Greek. Um, But either way, he was very influential in both Greek-speaking and Syriac-speaking Christian monastic communities. Um, Syriac, if you don't know, is um, essentially just a later form of Aramaic, the language of Jesus, which is like a cousin language to like Hebrew and uh, Arabic and Aramaic. The reason we call him Pseudo-Dionysius is that he claims to be named Dionysius, um, and it is clear once you read sort of the full scope of his collected works, which, like Tyler said earlier, are very short. You can buy them for $13 from um, Paulist Press. If you read the whole scope of his works, it's very clear that he is claiming to be the Dionysius that Paul met on um, on uh, Mars Hill. So it says in Acts that when Paul is debating with the philosophers um, on Mars Hill, because according to Acts, they're all lazy and don't do anything other than talk about new ideas all day. Um, great little dig from Luke. That Paul converts a man named Dionysius, and tradition has it that this Dionysius whom Paul converted uh, 
from being a Greek philosopher became a bishop. And uh, this, a bishop of either Cyprus or Milan or Athens. And that um, the 5th and 6th century writer is claiming to be that person in order to give his version of an extremely philosophical uh, way of approaching God. And Tyler had an interesting point about that earlier that was new to me. There, another part of this legend is that Dionysius was the person who set up the shrine to the unnamed god that Paul makes a point of, of discussing on his, uh, in his sermon there on Mars Hill, or which is also known in Greek as the Areopagus. So you'll see Dionysius, the Areopagite, the, the person of the Areopagus. So it's interesting that legend is that he established the shrine to the unnamed god, which Paul uses to say that God you don't know is Jesus, the resurrected Lord. Because the works of Dionysius is all about the God that we cannot name. Um, the, the work on the divine names kind of goes through scripture and talks about all of the, all of the, the words we're given for God, you know, like father or light or goodness or, <clears throat> or whatever. And he says, yes, God is good and God is light and God is father, but God is beyond those things. And once we get beyond those things, there's really no words that we have to describe God. Um, and so the that legend, you know, I don't know which came first, but between the legend about him setting up that shrine to the unnamed God um, or the writings of Dionysius describing the unnameable God. Uh, but it's, a, it's, it, it's fitting that those legends come together like that. Now, going on a little bit more about this whole idea of pseudo-Dionysius and him taking on this name, we've talked a little bit about pseudonyms before um, on another episode. I don't remember which one, but it's not as if this author is lying, necessarily. I I, I don't think this author um, expected his readers to think this is really that Dionysius. Um, in fact, there's a there's a lecture, um, a Harvard lecture that is on YouTube. You can watch it, listen to it for free, um, and it's a a scholar talking about the this the pseudonym that the author uses, as if it's a an act of apophatic anthropology. So we talked about apophatic theology, where we deny and negate these analogies we have for God. And this scholar thinks that the uh, using this pseudonym is an act of, by the author himself of negating himself, of denying himself. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know what to think of that. Maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. Uh, but I think this author is certainly complex and deep enough to have done something like that, to to deny himself, to take on the identity of someone else in order to to speak more fully about the things he's trying to get across. Um, so it's an interesting, interesting take on pseudonymity, specifically with this author. It's, I think that pseudo-Dionysius is one of the more uh, secure pseudonyms that we can say is not trying to lie. Um, I think with some pseudonyms that it you know, contrary to popular scholarly opinion, like they were trying to lie and acquire authority that they didn't have. But with Pseudo-Dionysius, it really doesn't seem like he was, because first of all, who's like Dionysius? Like he gets one line in scripture, like, and that's not unheard of for pseudonyms, but like you could have picked a better choice. But even more importantly than that, um, Pseudo-Dionysius quotes later Greek philosophers um, and even like, Fifth uh, and sixth century Christians recognized that he was like quoting later authors and pointing out that like this couldn't have been written by Dionysius the actual Areopagite um, because he's quoting uh, a guy named Proclus. It would be a lot like finding a letter from Thomas, like claiming to be from Thomas Jefferson, and he's uh, quoting passages from Bernie Sanders. <laughs> like either that person is lazy. 
um, and kind of dumb, or they re- expect you to recognize that this is pseudonymous. Um, and one thing that you cannot come away from these texts is that he was lazy and dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Might be a fun exercise to talk about, like, kind of our personal introduction to Dionysius. Yeah. Because, so we've talked a lot about Dr. Will Height, David Will Height, um, our kind of uh, mentor and guide into the patristic era and kind of how he shaped and, and helped us understand the the importance of this era and the authors. I, rem- I think... We've talked about this before, personally, a long time ago, but it was the day in class where we talked about Dionysius that the patristic era clicked for me, because mm. I remember reading it as homework and thinking, what the hell is this? This is ridiculous, and I don't know what's happening. And then the next day in class, when Dr. Wilhite explained it to us, I thought, this is the most profound moment of seminary so far um i remember in in class will height had us uh start naming attributes of god and everyone was going around you know god is love god is good and then i was being a smart ass and i started quoting that chris tomlin song indescribable uncontainable you know the (laughs) stars in the sky and you know them by name and Will Height got really excited and he was like, yeah, keep going, keep going. Because he didn't realize that I was just <laughs> quoting that song. When I said indescribable, uncontainable, he said, yeah, keep going with that, keep going with that. And started, you know, he had columns where he was writing the the terms that we were doing. And when we got to that indescribable, uncontainable, he started saying, you know, showing us like, there are different ways that we speak about God. There are the, the affirmations, the assertions that we make. God is good. God is light. God is love. And then these uh, negations that we make about God. When we say God is indescribable, we're saying we don't have words for it. When we when we say God is uncontainable, we're saying there is no... We can't circumscribe God. There's no space that can hold God. We can't draw a circle around God. Um, and that was, you know... A moment where you know I'm being a smart ass and it turns around to be like a really profound <laughs> meaningful experience he denied your he denied denial. My, and didn't even get my joke <laughs> my stupid unfunny joke which like thinking about like indescribability in Dionysius is interesting because it is that it's that we don't have words to describe God but there's two different ways you could think about the problem of not having words to describe God. On the one hand, you could think uh, the the goal, therefore, is to find new and better words. Um, so like trying to define God more exactly um, because we don't yet have the correct words, but the correct words could be found. But that's not what Dionysius is saying. He's saying that God cannot be described because God like fundamentally cannot be uh, cannot have language applied to God because God is so ontologically separate from human cognition that language, which is essentially a human product, uh, cannot touch the essence uh, of the fundamentally, not just uh, practically indescribable God. And so that there's like a there's a category difference between God and humanity not a degree of difference not even just a difference between god and humanity but but yeah. between god and being itself mm-hmm. so and like every time i think about this i just kind of get stumped because how do you think of something outside of being and i think that's the point that dionysius is trying to make because once you start trying to think about it you realize not only that there aren't words for it but there's not thought that can even generate around it mm-hmm. um and and this i think is an important point to make is that as intellectual and philosophical as this group of writings is this is ultimately about worship and so dionysius when he when he's talking about making affirmations and then making negations 
and using all of this terminology that feels very, I don't know, ivory tower. It's about how can we worship God in spirit and in truth? When we get to the point that we no longer have words for God and we have to sit in silence, that's when we experience God, is what Dionysius is getting at. This is ultimately about getting to the point where we realize how far beyond us God is. And and in that recognition of our own lack, we can truly appreciate the greatness of God. And there was a quote from Wittgenstein that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, what was it? It's, he's, you know, using a German-speaking early 20th century British, so I'm going to butcher it because it's all fancy, but it's like, whereof that cannot be spoken, thereof one must be silent, or something like that. Yeah. I think it's from his, like, you know, just book of bullet points. Uh, whatever that was called, it's Tractatus like, Logicus or something. It's like they say: if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But this yeah. is: if you don't have anything to say, don't say anything at all. Which that's actually a really interesting thing about Dionysius. So, what separates Dionysius from an atheist is a question I've heard posed about this text huh. that I think is profound. And so, you would in both the atheist and the mystical theologian would say: you can't say anything about God. Um, and that God does not exist, but it's in two different directions. The atheist says it's not worth saying anything about God and that God just, there is a, a category that a God could exist in, but happens to not. Whereas the mystical theologian says you must speak about God, but that language is, uh, futile and God doesn't exist in the sense that God is the creator of existence itself and so it is not bound by that category but the mystical theologian feels that they have to travel through affirmations about god in order to deny them to to better understand what cannot be understood whereas the atheists just think that's not worth doing yeah i I mean that's a perfect segue to get into the actual text because he opens up kind of talking not about atheists exactly but about how this project is only for people who have been initiated into the the community of believers. Because um, basically he says, like, the step we're about to take is for believers. Before we get into that, we'll just say, again, we're reading Mystical Theology, and this is the shortest work in the book. It's seven pages long. It's extremely short, extremely readable, and a perfect introduction to mystical theology. And in these seven pages is some of the most dense, meaningful, beautiful writing. He's a beautiful, poetic writer. It even opens with a poem, um, which I guess it wouldn't hurt to just read that yeah. little poem. And it's like a, a prayer poem. Yeah. You want to read that? Sure. Trinity, higher than any being, any divinity, any goodness, guide of Christians in the wisdom of heaven. Lead us up beyond unknowing and light, up to the farthest, highest peak of mystic scripture, where the mysteries of God's word lie simple, absolute and unchangeable in the brilliant darkness of a hidden silence. Amid the deepest shadow, they pour overwhelming light on what is most manifest. Amid the holy, unsensed, and unseen, they completely fill our sightless minds with treasures beyond all beauty. And then he goes on to say, For this I pray, and Timothy, my friend, my advice to you as you look for a sight of the mysterious things is to leave behind you everything perceived and understood, everything perceptible and understandable, all that is not and all that is, and with your understanding laid aside to strive upward as much as you can toward union with him who is beyond all being and knowledge. And that's sort of the thesis of the um, of the little booklet first set as a prayer and then sort of in prose yeah laying aside all understanding and notice he says uh timothy this fake dionysius is writing to timothy which is the very same timothy that paul writes to that paul set up to lead the church in ephesus um so 
that's another little piece of this kind of pseudonymous literature and how it works is this is a letter written to uh, uh, another another person that we know and and we and we and we know his story. But uh, moving on into the work, he he goes straight into this who it's written for and who it is that needs to take on this project of apophatic theology. He says straight away in the next paragraph, see to it that none of this comes to the hearing of the uninformed, that is to say those caught up with the things of the world, who imagine that there is nothing beyond instances of individual being, and who think that by their own intellectual resources they can have direct knowledge of him who has made the shadows his hiding place. Aristotelians. That's what I'm guessing. You think that's who he's specifically talking about? I don't know. Like, I wouldn't, like, you know, bet money on that. But, like, he's rejecting different philosophical schools, right? So, like, next he's going to reject, like, people who believe that they can f- capture God in idols. And here he's saying uh, people who believe that... Um, only concrete objects exist and no like Hmm. universal forms maybe yeah which uh this would be uh, a description of most uh westerners uh people who believe that only individual objects exist and not uh broader mystical realities that are instantiated in those objects yeah and probably us too (laughs) so he goes on to to kind of describe the the process um kind of the steps uh he says in the same paragraph that the divine is the cause of all beings so we should ascribe to it all the affirmations we make in regard to beings so this is what we talked about before where you start with cataphatic theology you start by making assertions about god making affirmations. God is good. God is light. God is Father. Um, and even he, he says the affirmations we make in regard to all beings. So he kind of is saying we, we look at the world and we see that things exist. And so therefore there, there must be a maker. You've heard that argument for the existence of God, which Dionysius is not interested in proving the existence of God. Here's a banana. <laughs> Deep cut there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so when we look at existence, we see that there is, there exists some being that made all things in existence. And we ascribe that to this creator. One could say it's the mark of the maker. <laughs> But then, but then we have to go beyond that, um, because in order to make all things that exist, we have to say that this creator is something different than, than what exists. This creator is beyond existence, um, something that we as created things, existing things, cannot understand. So he continues in that quote, and more appropriate, appropriately, we should negate all these affirmations since it surpasses all being. And so uh, maybe taking as an analogy what uh, Tyler just said, God is uh, good, or God is love, maybe is a better one. Uh, Scripture says God is love, and according to the divine names, you have to find uh, the the only things that you can say in positive theological terms, the the only affirmations you can make about God are the affirmations that Scripture itself gives you. Dionysius is a good Calvinist. (laughs) Uh, but at the same time, you have to deny these affirmations after having asserted them. So God is love. That is true in a sense. And it is also not true in another sense. And because we know what the word love means, uh, you could look it up in a dictionary. Our society has a, uh, an agreed upon definition of the word love. God is love in a pure sense. Um, but God is not love in a restricted sense. Uh, it's rather that God defines love than that love defines God's uh, attitude. And so God is not love in the sense that what we as 21st century uh, Southern Americans 
think of when we think of the terms love because God is uh, bigger than our the definitions that we place on the attributes related to God. And so you cannot say God is loving, therefore God must uh, want X because that would be uh, placing God subservient to the idea of love. And Dionysius, one of Dionysius's main points is that God cannot be made subservient to a human idea. Um, the idea must be made subservient to God. And so after making the affirmation, you have to deny what the affirmation would misleadingly lead you to believe if you took it at face value. Yeah. So um, we've talked about this before with goodness. God is good. And, you know, that uh, old, I mean, Plato was having this debate on uh, what's the... What's it called? The uh... for some reason, all I can think of is Euthyphro's dilemma, but I don't. That, think... Yeah, that's it. Is that it? Yeah, okay. yeah. So, like, do the gods love something because it is good, or the do the gods? Um... Like, Shit, do they? Make... <laughs> it's like, do they make it good by loving it? Right? Is it like, do they love it because it's good, or is it good because they love it? Right. And right. so, like that christian dilemma like does is there a universal moral code that god subscribes to or does god's will define what the moral code is right and i think dionysius is squarely in the latter camp okay so so it's wrong to murder is it wrong to murder because god says it's wrong to murder or does god say it's wrong to murder because there's kind of this already existing moral code that says it's wrong to murder like does god conform to that thing to that guideline or does that guideline exist only because god says god uh, it's wrong to murder so like where does goodness come from where does love come from and dionysius i think like Gerhard said would fall into the camp of it's good because god says it's good it's wrong because God says it's wrong. God is beyond these categories of good and love, even though we can ascribe these categories of good and love to God. Um, Thinking about this, so uh, I've been known to indulge in a gaming disorder, as it's now called. Um, <laughs> but there, th- this is actually when I play games or watch movies with a theological element especially like a pagan theological element like this actually helps me understand the the sort of media that i'm engaging with um at i think a more profound level than i would have before i had thought about the terms that dionysius lays out and so use maybe skyrim for a really well-known example um in skyrim there are multiple uh, contrasting gods. Um, so you've got Molag Ball, who is like just, su- you're supposed to believe him to be an extremely evil uh, divinity. And he uh, asks you to like torture someone to death and then revives them again and asks you to torture them to get death again just because they defied him. Um, and then a- another god, um, a goddess, asks you to clear out a crypt that's been defiled or whatever. And that's the good god. One's bringing life and one's bringing torture and death. And so the assumption, like maybe the the basic uh, assumption that most people would probably make is that one god is good and one god is bad. Uh, but that would imply that there is a super god that's deciding uh, that one god is good and one god is bad. And in the absence of the super god, there's not actually something telling you that saving life is uh, better than torturing someone to death. And in the absence of that uh, meta-divinity, all of the requests of the divine are flattened morally, and so that there is actually nothing immoral about torturing a priest to death if a god tells you to do it, and there's nothing uh, moral about uh, protecting life aside from the fact that a god tells you to do it. And so this... uh, is is brought out some in popular media and most often it's just assumed to be the fact that there is like a super moral code and 
But when you start questioning these assumptions in the way that Dionysius would have us to question, uh, morality gets blurred in an interesting way. Yeah. Or, I mean, another analogy of that, because you can never, you know, we always have to have a thousand explanations of things. And then we deny them. And then we deny them. <laughs> so, uh, Game of Thrones is another example mm-hmm. of this, which these are slight spoilers from like season four or five or something. So if you don't want spoilers, skip ahead 30 seconds or a minute. But with uh, the Red Priestess mm-hmm. worshipping Rohalor, the the god of the Lord of Light, what does she do to please the Lord of Light and to bring about the things that the Lord of Light desires? She sacrifices, uh, you know, uh, Stannis' daughter and kills her because this is what the Lord of Light... This is what she believed the Lord of Light was telling her to do. And in her mind, because... The, the one true Lord told her to do this, she had to do it. It doesn't matter that it was ending a life. It was the moral thing to do because a God said it. Um, so that's what we're getting at with with this, pulling back to Dionysius. Um, God surpasses our categories of good and evil and love and hate and uh, what is right and good is defined by God because so just as existence exists because God made it, so goodness itself and love itself exists because God defined those things. Um, and so mystic theology is about recognizing that God is beyond all of this. Um, but, but it is ultimately more about language. Dionysius really isn't concerned so much about moral dilemmas and uh, and and those questions. He's more concerned about language, which is interesting how how easily pseudo Dionysius fits into postmodern philosophy. Yeah, it's really interesting how theologians in the past several decades have like castigated postmodernism so hard because of the way that they blur lines. And because of the games they play with language. But, like, theologians have been doing this for a long time. And Pseudo-Dionysius is one of the most influential authors on our understanding of, like, mystical theology. And he's doing, like, the same things that Wittgenstein and Derrida do. Uh, which is tell you that your words are meaningless. That, like... And, like, this is a... A traditional Christian writer if there ever has been one like he was one of the most popular theologians of the medieval era he like influenced the way cathedrals were structured he had commentaries written on him Aquinas wrote a commentary on him like, uh, I think if I remember correctly pseudo Dionysius is the single most quoted theologian by Thomas Aquinas and in, in, um, in the Summa, Summa Theologica. I, I think that's right so, like, this is the level of Christian tradition that we're talking about. Like, this is sort of fundamental to post-antique Christianity. Um, and he is raising essentially the same philosophical questions uh, that were raised against modernism uh, ever since the, uh, like, late 19th, early 20th, and especially now into the 21st century. Um, and so in the same way that Christianity is older than capitalism and questions the root of capitalism through its moral uh, issues, Christianity is much older than modernism and has been questioning the root of modernism uh, and therefore paving the way for postmodernity um, for a long, long time. And so this isn't something to be scared of, like Derrida and Levinas and um, some like John Luke Marion is very, like reading John Luc Marion is re- like reading a like French uh, writer trying to be pseudo Dionysius. Like, yeah, he's clearly intentionally yeah. drawing on pseudo Dionysius. Yeah. Like his, one of his main books is God without being, um, which is just making this point that God does not exist in the way that we exist. God is beyond existence. And the image he uses actually, I think maybe is really instructive for, 
understanding Dionysius himself because he talks about the the question of the idol. Um, the idol and the icon is the two images he poses, and I don't think that these are like his necessarily historically accurate, um, but they are good images. And so the I the the reason that um, the reason that an idol is condemned is because an idol uh, tries to capture divinity and directs attention towards itself um, as the the place in which divinity is found. Um, an icon of a saint or Jesus or something like that is not condemned by Christianity because it's something that you look through um, that you recognize you're not looking at God and you're not therefore worshiping uh, the icon itself, you're looking through it to the unnameable that is worshipped um, through the veneration of the icon. Yeah, it's like it's like a conduit that pulls you through itself. Right. Yeah. Like, and I, I wouldn't like necessarily theologically agree with that or historically agree with those definitions, but I do think it's a helpful way to think about uh, language as either idolatrous or a, um, a, a iconographic. I guess. Yeah. yeah. It's really interesting. So thinking about that, uh, the a word that Dionysius seems to really like is like the ray, like a ray of light, a ray of sunshine beaming towards you. And he talks about our knowledge of God like that. And I think that's really intentional there and helpful because a ray doesn't come from us to what we're looking at. It's not like a flashlight that I point in the darkness at, you know, whatever thing I'm trying to see in front of me. I'm not the one with the beam of light. The beam of light comes to me and I am a passive participant. Um, and that's um, our knowledge of God, according to Dionysius, is very passive. Um, so this light comes to us and we look to it. Uh, it's not something that we can make our way toward with these affirmations. Uh, um, the affirmations that we make, the the assertions that we make about God kind of get us to a certain point, but ultimately we're going to have to shed those things and just move upward into that beam of light, which in the in the first paragraph, this is the, the poetic nature of the way Dionysius thinks, uh, he says that um, by undivided and absolute abandonment of yourself and everything, shedding all and freed from all, you will be uplifted to the ray of divine shadow, which is above everything that is. So think about that image, a ray of shadow. How do you even conceptualize that? How do you think of a ray of shadow? Because a ray is, by definition, a beam of light. But, but Dionysius says there, there's something different happening here. It's not shedding light on something. It's not revealing something. It's revealing the absence of something. And the absence is your capacity of naming or understanding it. So once we get to a certain point, we're drawn by the light, we're, we're moving toward the light upward, you know, toward this sort of sunshine. But once we get to a certain point, it's darkness, where we've moved into the, the shadows in which God hides. And there's no light there because there's no ability for our mind to, to even understand it. And this is connected also to what you may have heard of from, was it the 14th century, uh, a mystical theological work called The Cloud of Unknowing, which is also extremely, uh, extremely influential in the Western tradition. It's an English work from, like I said, 14th, 15th century. Um, as we move toward God, we move into this cloud of unknowing where there's not really... So... Okay, the little dig digression here. Moving back into postmodern philosophy, Derrida, Wittgenstein. Words themselves in postmodern thought are just signposts. They point us in a direction of something that our mind needs to think about. So, if you go to the dictionary and look up 
the word love, what you're going to have on the page are more words. And you can go up and you can go and look up every individual word in that definition, and those are going to point you to more words, which are going to point you to more words. And ultimately, it's just this gigantic circle pointing toward things, but never really arriving at anything. And that's where Dionysius is saying we're being led in our worship of God, in our mental uh, contemplation of the divine. We get to this cloud by way of these signposts, such as Father and Light and Goodness and Bread of Life. But once we get past these signposts, we're into this fog and we no longer have these signposts to direct us, and we're, we're left without direction. And it's a scary place, if you think about it. Uh, but this is where, like I was saying before, this is where I think Dionysius is leading us to worship God in spirit and in truth. Our, our ability to, to speak of God is kind of lost itself and we've adventured into this the truly unknown we've lost our ability to speak and we're left utterly speechless and i think that's what dionysius believes is is where we truly worship god images of this which you know it's funny he's using images um because that's all we have <laughs> yeah but one of the images that i i think is most uh what really strikes me whenever i read it is his image in that first prayer it's similar to the the ray of darkness that tyler talked about and he says in like you know one of the first few lines um that the mysteries of god's word lie simple absolute and unchangeable in the brilliant darkness of a hidden silence and brilliant here means like bright and so what he's saying is that like the mysteries of god which are the mysteries of god's revelation to us god's word um exist in a location of brilliant of bright darkness uh so like the content is there to be grasped but it appears to us as dark because it is beyond our grasp like god's God grasps God's self. God understands God's self. And God understands the mysteries because they can be understood, but they're just so beyond human language and human cognition that they appear to us as darkness. And so the problem, it's not, you know, like a moral problem. It's just a maybe a physical problem. The problem is that we can't grasp it, not that it isn't there. So God can speak of God's self, um, but through a speech that is so beyond our uh, capacity that we couldn't comprehend it. Yeah. And, and in that first, in the beginning sections of this, he says this negation, this denying, is not saying that it's opposite. Like when we say God is not good, we're not saying God is bad. We're saying God is good. God is beyond good. So there's not a... a the negation isn't saying, you know, uh, the opposites are true. It's saying that, there, that there's more to this. And it's interesting as he goes on that once we've arrived at this speechlessness, that silence itself is almost an, a sort of affirmation, a sort of assertion. So he says uh, at one point after he's described this ascent beyond the light and into the darkness, he says... My argument now rises from what is below up to the transcendent, and the more it climbs, the more language falters, and when it has passed up and beyond the ascent, it will turn silent completely, since it will finally be at one with him who is indescribable. So once we have reached speechlessness, 
our language has finally spoken the truth about God. So it's that sort of dialectic, that that affirmation of silence. Um, and just, I don't know, that's a really powerful and beautiful point he's making there. Yeah. So something that might be helpful at this point is um, maybe concrete examples. Uh, this is going to be from elsewhere um, in his uh, works, but it's all pointing to the same ideas as we find in mystical theology. Uh, so maybe starting at the base, um, the base of things, the most almost demeaning uh, image of God that is used in scripture, which again, uh, Dionysius is only talking about the images that God, God's self gives us in scripture. Uh, God is described as a rock. Um, so Moses strikes the rock and water comes from the rock and feeds uh, or gives water to the people. And Paul says that rock was Christ. God is described as a rock there and elsewhere in scripture. So on the one hand, we affirm that God is rock-like. Uh, God is strong. God is stable. Uh, God can be trusted. Uh, if you build your house upon the rock, mm. it will not fall when the winds come. And so if you build your life on Jesus's teachings, uh, your life will not come unhinged if um, you live in an oppressive society that uh, constantly is at war with you. Um, that you can retain stability even in the hardest times. So God is like a rock, but God is not composed Isn't of that calcium. A Chevy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God is like a truck. Like a rock. <laughs> uh, but God is not composed of, you know, calcium or whatever a rock is composed of. I don't know. Uh, God is not, uh, God cannot be touched. God cannot uh, be hewn into a shape that you like. God cannot be made into a statue. God is not rock-like. God is rock-like in the sense uh, that the metaphor about him says true things, uh, but God is not rock-like in the sense that the metaphor can be trusted completely. But even those true things themselves fall prey to this uh, issue. So, Tyler, what else do we find in pseudo-dynasties? Maybe building on God is a rock, therefore God is trustworthy, therefore God is stable. Yeah. Well, what about God is Father? So this gets us into the more spiritual, and this is a more, uh, like, a more important name that we have for God in Scripture, is God is Father. Not only Father of all creation, but Father of the Son, um, which in the divine names and other work that we're not focusing on, today, but in that work he talks about uh, names that we have for God that encompass the entire Godhead, and then these distinguishable titles of the individual persons within the Trinity. He is extremely Trinitarian um, in the way that he describes and, and talks about God, um, even though he's problematizing the words we use for God. So God is Father, we have to talk about God as Father. Um, this is a title that Scripture, one of the, like, the number one title that we have for God. But God is not Father. God did not copulate with a woman to produce, uh, you know, God did not inject sperm into a woman's, you know, womb and her, you know, and the embryo mixed and became you know, a mass of cells that became a fetus, that became, you know, the child. That's not how things worked with God. I mean, unlike the pagan ideas about God where, you know, Ra right. ejaculates into his own mouth and therefore gives birth to all creation, like understood yeah, apparently physically. Or right. like the, uh, maybe the pseudo-Jewish, uh, pseudo-pagan, uh, like inscriptions that we have where with there's Yahweh and his Asherah, his wife, that mm. give birth to yeah. the angels or whatever. Yeah. So the 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 imagery that we have of God as father is incomplete. God is not father in the sense that God does not perform these activities that 
in our uh, understanding of reality make one a father. Um, God is beyond that, and father is just a a signpost. Father is just a way that we have of understanding God's relation to humanity, God's relation to the what we call the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus, the Word of God. So, what what do we call God? Now, there's also an interesting aspect of Dionysius's theology is that there is a hierarchy of analogies. It is more correct, more, maybe correct's not the word, maybe appropriate is a better word. It's more appropriate to call God Father than it is to call God Rock or to call God Dirt. And so, uh, then, and that's not to say that it's wrong to call God Rock. I mean, we have in Scripture where God is described as a rock. We even still sing in our hymns today. God is, you know, rock of ages or... Christ the solid rock. Christ the solid rock, yeah. So uh, calling God a rock is not a bad thing, but it's closer to the truth to call God Father or to call God light or life. But it's closer to the truth. And even Dionysius says we have actually arrived at the truth when we've stopped using language altogether. Like, our language has be- has become one with the truth whenever there is no language at all. Like, after we have internalized the lessons that language tried to teach us and accepted the lessons that language tried to teach us and then uh, moved forward beyond uh, the language itself, right? So, like, once we've internalized the teachings of our teachers and then begun to see the reality behind them, which cannot be spoken. And so that in a practical way, you still trust God because God is stable, like rock. In a practical way, you understand that there is a such thing as Trinity because uh, God is, like, there is such a thing as, uh, like, multiplicity within divinity. Uh, you understand those things in a practical um basic sense but then you also move beyond them and don't try to capture what you see um, through the faulty mechanism of language not because language is bad or broken but because language uh, is a is a this plane of existence reality and something coming outside of this plane of existence can't be spoken of in language Uh, it's Maybe in a different direction, uh, the a novel um, by a guy named Jeff Vandermeer, I think, does a really good job of uh, touching on this because he's talking about maybe the other direction. He's talking about like a, a semi-demonic plane of existence uh, coming into our world. Um, and that's not quite accurate if you read the book, but this is a signpost pointing us to a reality. Uh <laughs> And that reality is a novel talking about unreal things. <laughs> yeah. Talking about unreality? Yeah. Like, in in his uh, Area X trilogy, the first book, Annihilation, uh, the end of the book, which you should all read, um, he does a really interesting uh, couple of pages dis- attempting to describe something that cannot be described in language in a way that gets across the reality that cannot, it cannot be described. And so... Um, because this thing is from beyond our plane of existence, the language of this plane of existence uh, does not do justice to the thing when it is experienced. Um, Which is really interesting. It's a it's a genre of literature called the new weird, mm-hmm. um, which is really influenced by uh, like H.P. Lovecraft. And the point of the new weird is to describe things so when you're reading this on the page they're using words to describe these beings or events or whatever and and the the point is to is to confuse your mind as they describe these things your mind cannot create a coherent picture of what is happening on the page mm-hmm. and so they're intentionally playing with the problem of language in in a really cool way and maybe just instructively, like, 
they do it in a way that is pleasing to a reader whereas like if you got a middle school student <laughs> like they might also describe something that cannot be described <laughs> but it's like y- we feel that those are different things we yeah. feel that this is a t- this is making us believe that there is a reality beyond language whereas we don't believe the middle schoolers like at you know book about the scary goat man like points us to anything beyond like this unthought through like a mm. uh, picture and that's the difference between the atheist and the mystical theologian according to pseudo dionysius one is uh not attempting to speak at all like attempting to say within human language that something doesn't exist and it's not particularly compelling uh, the other is using human language to show that human language cannot uh do anything more than point beyond the frail capacities of humanity in sort of like a in ecclesiastes maybe gives us the perfect picture for worship under a mystical theological um lens which is uh, god is in heaven and we are on earth therefore let all human flesh keep silent like god is so beyond humanity that the best we can do is just acknowledge god in humility it's it's interesting to me as i think through this it makes me think of the progression from modernity to postmodernity. Modernity feels like the stage of cataphatic theology mm-hmm. that we start with as what Dionysius thinks should be our our infancy in Christianity, where we're making all of these assertions about God, trying to use language to describe God, and then once we make that linguistic turn we realize that our language is is really problematic, that it falters at, at every corner. So postmodernity, I think, is closer to, uh, maybe a better way to put it, postmodernity is more easily um, like incorporated into Christian theology, just like I mean, what what Dionysius is doing here is incorporating Neoplatonic philosophy into mm-hmm. Neoplatonistic the- philosophy into Christian theology, um, and using it to help us understand what we're doing in theology. And so, I think modernism really is not a helpful way. It's what Dionysius criticized at the beginning of this. You know, that kind of uninitiated trying to describe God in human terms, and you're missing the point that God is beyond humanity. Hmm. And I think uh, we can... There are philosophies and ways of thinking that can help us. Like, they are tools to help us get to a certain point. And, like, not that Dionysius would think that Neoplatonism or postmodernity are the way to it. It's just... There are more and less appropriate words. There are more and less appropriate philosophies to help us get to the point of where we're thinking and speaking about God in more or less appropriate ways, I think. Because modernity had its had its benefits. The Enlightenment had its benefits. Um, uh, you know, helping us think through things in certain ways. I wouldn't write it off entirely. Right. But I'd say that we we passed the the light that it had to give us maybe as another image like imagine a like kid of uh christian parents right so this kid of christian parents learns about um faith and life from his parents and it's basically extremely simple um and we've most uh people who grew up in Christian uh, families can relate to that like uh, I remember growing up in mostly a culturally Christian family and reading the Bible for the first time when I was 16 and I get to the point in 1 Corinthians where it says uh, I wish every man was as I am Um, in context it's not married and the first thing I thought of was like okay does that okay so God's not married what does this mean about the Virgin Mary and like how does that all work like it's extremely simple um 
And then the student goes off to maybe a state school and goes to a philosophy class and learns uh, all new truths about the world, um, new cataphatic truths about the world, descriptions of how the world is, and then thinks, oh, my past was just stupid and I was an idiot and now I've uh, I've become enlightened. Uh, I'm now a modern person and essentially writes off the faith of the family and parents mm-hmm. as just stupid because yeah. I've now found something that really describes the world. Like I understand neutrons and electrons and evolution and, you know, and all of this true things about the way the world is. Right. Postmodernity is when that student... Uh, either has continued in uh, their thinking and made a turn back to the Christian faith of their parents. In a lot of ways, postmodernity is a turning back to the Christian, um, turning back to Christian, Jewish, and Muslim philosophy um, of previous centuries and finding that awakening within them. So this is the student who goes to Harvard, takes a philosophy class, gets really into Sam Harris, um, but later on, when they're an adjunct philosophy professor, uh, realizes that their worldview collapses and they start going to the Episcopal Church in town because they need answers. That's yeah. sort of Western philosophy. I, I can't remember who coined this term, but they call this the second naivety. Mm-hmm. Like you, your first naivety it would be like that point when you're a kid and you don't really understand the way the world is and you just kind of believe everything as it's told to you. Then you get smart, you go to college, you learn science, and think you've figured the world out. And then that second naivety is realizing how much you don't know and returning back to the foundation of your faith and, and respecting the, the world in a different way. Yeah. Like an, an informed naivety. Sort of like a lot of Christians today are experiencing with like theology of scripture, like a lot of people grew up with a very strict inerrancy understanding. Yeah. And then they learned that that couldn't be trusted, so they basically stopped trusting the Bible altogether. And there's a movement now to move back to understanding the scriptures as authoritative in a really meaningful sense in the same, a similar way to inerrancy, um, but recognizing the historical critical problems involved. And that's, I mean, I went through that. I'm sure most, yeah. Yeah. a lot of people listening probably did as well. This is the sort of movement uh, that we see in Western philosophy um, and that in a like an image way we see in Dionysius. You move uh, you move two problematic descriptions of God and then away from those descriptions of God, recognizing the value that those things gave you. So we'll conclude here. I'd like to conclude with the last couple sentences from this work. He says, speaking of God, there is no speaking of it, nor name, nor knowledge of it. Darkness and light, error and truth, it is none of these. It is beyond assertion and denial. We make assertions and denials of what is next to it, but never of it. For it is both beyond every assertion, being the perfect and unique cause of all things, and by virtue of his preeminently simple and absolute nature, free of every limitation, beyond every limitation, it is also beyond every denial. So Dionysius says, we've made our assertions, and then we've made our negations, and then even as we sit in silence and we come to that point of realizing that God is beyond everything, we even have to deny that. And we're left with what? I think we're left with scripture. We're left with whatever God has given us to speak about God. Because we, we can't function without language. We can't function spiritually without a way of thinking about the divine. So once we've made our assertions and then denied those assertions, we have to also deny those denials and come back to what God has given us, which is this language. And so we can call God rock, and we can call God bread of life, and we can call God father, and those are good assertions to make. 
thanks for listening to Podcastica Patristica. Um, we enjoyed reading through and talking about this text, and we hope you enjoyed it as well. Um, if you wouldn't mind, uh, we would not deny it. If you went to iTunes and rated and reviewed the podcast, um, if you uh, shared it on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and um, if you're interested in more content like this in different directions, uh, Jake, Robbie, and I uh, also host a podcast called The Reformation Podcast. It's at RefPod on Twitter. Um, and we talk about similar issues uh, from about a millennium later. Uh, so like 16th century Christianity, give or take a century. Uh, and uh, we talk about like the theological texts and their relevance to modern life. We uh, also have now fully transitioned from Patristica Press to the Augustinian. It's a like conglomeration of um, sort of online content, uh, mostly with uh, articles that are written um, by us and people that we respect and trust. Um, everything from the ethics of U.S. involvement in Venezuela, uh, to the way early Christians wrote about wealth, to specifics in church history. Um, and maybe it'll continue, maybe it won't, but I'm working on a new podcast podcast right now called The Cultural Revolution Read-Along, uh, where I just read uh, articles by uh, right-wing writers and talk about how uh, not only do we not affirm them, but we explicitly deny <laughs> them. Like. Uh, basically just unveiling the propaganda of the fascism of the right, especially through uh, unveiling the hidden assumptions of capitalist economics. And that's C, uh, C-R-R-A pod on Twitter. So follow us on social media, share it, tell your friends about it. If you deny us before, man, we will deny <laughs> you before the father. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.